0: I wasn't quite sure what to expect this week, given that I have never been to uh, Sovereign Grace Conference, but it's been uh, better than I had expected or anticipated, and I'm very grateful for that. I was telling my daughter, Katie, who's going into her senior year about the conference and suggested that maybe uh, one day she can accompany me and uh, find a husband, so I'm hoping for... (laughs) I'm hoping for an invite in about 20 years. uh, When I'm ready to let my only daughter leave the home, but. Maybe 15. Uh, The talk that I have been uh, asked to give uh, today is on the blessedness of God and uh, I want to I begin by asking you all a question, not for you to answer uh, audibly, but to think about your answer, and to meditate for just a little bit on how you would answer this question. Who is the happiest, most joyful person in this room right now? And I'm hoping that as you think about that, after you hear this talk, you're going to be able to answer that question. If you can answer it now, so be it. But I'm hoping that maybe even a little bit provocatively, you're going to learn something about happiness, joy, blessedness that perhaps you hadn't considered before. Now, we all can agree that there is a problem in society with uh, things like depression, sadness, a lack of joy, in fact, In recent years, there's a course that was developed at Yale University, and we're talking about a university with a 320-year history, roughly. And a professor named Laurie Santos uh, developed a course called Psychology and the Good Life. And it quickly became the most popular course ever in the history of Yale. In fact, one in four students take this course, Psychology and the Good Life. And the course is, in essence, about how can one be happy? And why are so many students, not just Yale students, but students in general, so miserable? And what she teaches is actually quite interesting because the things that we think will make us happy don't actually make us happy. Good grades don't actually make us any happier. A good job doesn't actually make you happier. Weight loss doesn't actually make you happier. In fact, people who went on weight loss programs actually became more depressed. I'm not sure if that's a good idea to say that publicly, but (laughs) there you go. And for those CrossFitters here, muscle mass doesn't actually make you happier. (laughs) I was so inspired by... Uh, Mike Bulmore's talk that last night, I will confess that while I may have been listening to uh, Kelly Clarkson a few days ago, I was doing push-ups uh, in my hotel room, just in case I ever have to go to seminary again and take a <laughs> class with him. <laughs> Muscle mass doesn't help. Plastic surgery makes people, a few years after they've had plastic surgery, less happier In general, in fact, what's so amazing is that it took Yale 320 years to figure out a few things that actually do seem to work. And two principal things emerged. There are others, but here are two principal things. The first is this social connections made people happier. Having social connections, being around people. The other thing that made people happier were acts of kindness, sometimes random or sometimes uh, acts of kindness that were planned. Whatever it may be, they made people happier. And as I listened to this lecture and the many lectures of the online course that over half a million people are taking right now, you will come to this startling conclusion that while the Christian church has been teaching this, in essence, for many thousands of years. Social connections, the church, people, random acts of kindness, loving your neighbor. Now, what does this have to do with God's blessedness? Well, is God actually happy? Is God joyful? Is He blessed? And the answer is yes, we're told that. In fact, in 1 Timothy, there's two places where God is called blessed. The first is in chapter 1, verse 11, where we are told in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The blessed God. And then Paul doesn't want to leave this idea completely, comes back to it in chapter 6, verse 15, when he says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords." Now the question is, why is God blessed? Why is he so happy? And the very simple answer is that he cannot be better than who he is, and he cannot be worse than who he is. Since he is unchanging, and since he is perfect, and since he is infinitely perfect, He is infinitely blessed. He has perfection of being, and God not only loves who he is, but he loves that he will always be who he is. He is the blessed God. And I confess I have a holy envy of this attribute. This is the one I want, God's blessedness. Now, theologians have tried to understand this a little more in depth than what I've just told you, and they've arrived at a few other conclusions as to why God is so blessed. And the answer is actually quite important to how we understand true happiness and true joy. God is blessed because he has a perfect union of all good things. Let me say that again. He has a perfect union of all good things. So if God was good but unable to effect what is good because he lacks power, he would not be blessed in the way that we claim him to be blessed. If God was eternal but ignorant, lacking omniscience, he would be miserable. Or if God were merciful and holy but lacked wisdom to save sinners in a way that protects his justice, He would not be blessed. But God has a perfect union of all good things. Imagine, if you will, using your sanctified imagination, that man has fallen into sin. And God calls the angels before him, his heavenly host. And the angels know that God is holy. And the angels know that God is just. And the angels know that God is love. And God says to them, what shall we do? Man has fallen into sin. How can we save such creatures? How can I, as a holy, loving, just God, save such creatures? And he sends the angels away to figure out how God is going to save sinners. And Thomas Goodwin has this wonderful section in one of his works where he says, they could go away for a million years and they would come back with a bill of ignoramus. I mean, I have always wanted to say that. (laughs) Because you can't call your kids that or other people. You could, but they come back Imagine the angels coming back to God and saying, you know what, we figured it out. We figured it out. This is our idea. The blessed Son of God, whom you have loved from all eternity, we think he should become like one of these creatures and assume to himself a human nature, born of a virgin in a manger, that he should have to flee for his life from his youngest age, be persecuted, mocked, ridiculed, that he should be despised and rejected by men and that he should go to a cross and be crucified and have the sins of all of these people imputed to him. That's our idea. They would have shuddered to even thought such a thing. Which is why when you see in the gospels, Mary is told of this great mystery and she, she's perplexed by it. Jesus speaks about how he's going to be betrayed into the hands of men. And Peter says, far be it, Lord, for such a thing to ever happen to you. But you see, there is nothing that God cannot handle, including the salvation of sinners in a way that protects his very being because he has a union of all good things, his wisdom and his justice, his love and his goodness his mercy, and his patience. And when all of those work together in such beautiful harmony, you have the most blessed being, God. God is blessed. Now what does that have to do with us? Well, there's a lot of things. And I thought about how does this relate to Christians? How does God's blessedness relate to Christians? It's one thing for God to be blessed, but what does that mean for you and I? And the good news is that this is an attribute that God shares with us. This is an attribute that God shares with us even in a fallen, miserable world that is crying out for redemption. And I thought about what passage would help us to see this, and I thought about Ecclesiastes chapter 11 verse seven. It's not immediately obvious, I think, but as we go through these two verses in verse seven and eight, I hope to bear out some of the importance of God's blessedness for your blessedness and my blessedness. Solomon, who I think wrote Ecclesiastes, says in verse seven of chapter 11, light is sweet. And it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Now, as I said, God's blessedness is the fountain from which we drink. And his blessedness is tied to our happiness. I know there are some people who want to spend endless hours on uh, Wikipedia or Google distinguishing between happiness and joy and blessedness, but if it was good enough for the puritans it's good enough for me. Thomas Goodwin says, "His own blessedness is your utmost happiness." They didn't have any hang-ups about calling Christians happy. I've heard some very pious people, "No, no, it's joy." When one of my favorite teams wins a game, I don't like jump up and say, well, is that joy jumping up or is that happiness? Which part? Oh, wretched man that I am. <laughs> I'm torn between the two. Joy that I should have, but this happiness that I'm not supposed to have because someone wrote an article about it. <laughs> God wants us to be happy. He created a world of happiness for Adam and Adam was happy because he was holy and he was holy because he was happy and he was happy because he knew God's fatherly love. But God blessed Adam not only with holiness and happiness, he gave him a world in which to enjoy including light which is sweet for it is pleasant for the eyes to see The sun, it hits differently in Vancouver by the way. (laughs) We've had about 10 months of rain and then the sun comes out and scorches us to the point we can't go outside. But does God still give us happiness even after the garden, even with the entrance of sin, and the answer is an unequivocal, yes, in fact, he gives to all people the degree of happiness because he makes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He makes his sun to shine on the wicked and the righteous. And Adam didn't have to deal with fear. Adam didn't have to deal with anxiety. Adam didn't have to deal with stress and depression and illness and jealousy and heartbreak but we do. And so the issue of God's happiness, God's blessedness is of paramount importance for you and I because we need it. We can't do without it. Now, what does Solomon have to say? Well, in verse eight, he says, so if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. In other words, what Solomon is saying, and I thought about another book idea, by the way, called Your, Your Best Life Now. <laughs> Solomon is saying that in a sense. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Have your best life. You should pursue your best life. All things work together for good to those who love God. And if you love God, you will have your best life because everything will be working together for your good. But you must remember this. The days of darkness will be many. You cannot escape the days of darkness. And when you've come to Psalm 88, as we heard sung so beautifully earlier, it's like you've arrived as a Christian. When you can come to that Psalm, because the days of darkness have hit you. And Solomon tells us, they will be many. Now, how do we deal with the days of darkness? We deal with the days of darkness by going back to God because God is compared to the sun for our enjoyment. Light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun, but the sun is actually compared to God in other places. So in Psalm chapter eighty. Four Verse 11, we're told, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. This is how you get happiness. God who bestows favor and honor. God who does what? He doesn't withhold any good thing from those who walk uprightly. Light is sweet, but the light of the world is sweeter. The days of darkness are many, but there was actually a day of darkness that was darker than all the rest. There was darkness in the time of Egypt when the plagues were put forth upon the Egyptians, and darkness was all over the land. In Exodus chapter 10, verse 21, the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. And it immobilized the Egyptians. And that plague fell upon our Lord Jesus Christ. He felt that darkness rejoice young man in the days of your life and enjoy them to the utmost but remember this the days of darkness will be many Christ understood that and you see the problem with false teaching is simply this it convinces people that they can avoid the darkness and only enjoy the happiness That the darkness is perhaps a result of a lack of faith or your sin or whatever else it may be. But true Christian teaching is not avoiding the darkness but persevering through and in the darkness. The days of darkness will be many but we will be faithful to the end. There was a soccer, tournaments, the Champions League. Surely you've heard of the Champions League and it's the best teams in Europe. And the semi-final was quite something. I'm a Liverpool fan and we we lost in the final, but we didn't, not we, I didn't even do anything. (laughs) I ate that, we. I did absolutely nothing. But I wanted Madrid to win because I thought Man City, who they were playing, would be much more difficult for Liverpool. And so Man City were playing Madrid in the semi-final. In the first leg, Man City were up, I think, two goals after playing at home. But then the second leg went to Madrid. And Man City actually scored a goal. And it was over. There was at one point, the statistics came up on the screen, the chance of Madrid going through and the chance of Man City going through, and it was 99% chance of Man City going through to the final, 1% chance for Madrid. I think they have to do that. You know, you have to say there was a chance, but there wasn't a chance. And in the 89th minute, Madrid scored a goal. And just before that, I said to Mara, you know, I thought Madrid would at least score one goal. And then they scored, and well, I claimed that I was a bit of a prophet and <laughs> her admiration for me increased and it was a wonderful time that, that minute. <laughs> so it was 3-2, I think, and Madrid had to score another goal. And there was really a few minutes left and it was a miracle they even scored the first goal and then they scored another goal. And then in overtime, they scored another goal. Now, the point was actually not that they won, but that when they were losing, a lot of their fans left the stadium. And you can go and look at the video of the fans who left the stadium, but as they've left the stadium on the outside, they're all of a sudden hearing unbelievable cheering going on on the inside. And I wrote down some of their quotes of how they were begging to be allowed back in. But once you leave a sporting event, you aren't allowed back in. And they said, come on, let us in. You can't do this. Shame on you. I come here once a year. The ticket was 250 euros. I just left and there's been two goals. One man said, we're not English fans. We are Madrid fans. Have some respect, please. Open the door. Will you open the door? And on the inside, they hear the chanting, yes, we can. Yes, we can. And you look at the video of those on the outside, and it's dark. And it's despair. And on the inside, there is cheering. There is light. There is vibrancy. And the ones who remained faithful to their team, were singing songs of praises, even when they thought they were going to lose, even in the days of darkness. And there were many who left, but there were many who stayed. And the Christian life is not being overcome by the darkness, but persevering through it and being faithful to the end because our God has blessed us and our God will bless us because he can do no other than who he is. There's a quote, joy is the highest and greatest gift that the infinite God can give to us. I was struck by this. He can give us greater things than riches, honors, friends, and relations. He can give us greater things than pardon of sin and peace of conscience. But he cannot give us anything greater than himself. When God gives you himself, when God unites himself to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he is giving you who he is, and he is the blessed God. And you will only be as happy or miserable as the one whom you serve. Now think about the man of sorrows. Can we say that our Lord Jesus Christ was joyful all the days of his life? Was the man of sorrows a man of joy at the same time? Now, I think there's a number of reasons why we can affirm wholeheartedly that Jesus was a man of joy from the very beginning to the very end. And I mean the very end. It's actually the other point that is supposed to help you with your happiness is 30 minutes of exercise a day. And I've been to Israel twice now and had great opportunities to preach in churches there and have uh, one of my books translated into Uh, Hebrew and and Russian and and Arabic, uh, the major languages of Christians in Israel. And as you go through Israel, you see these hills and the distances that Jesus must have walked from town to town and village. And this was not just flatlands, there's hills. I woke up this morning and went for a run in a charming little place, Anchorage. Beautiful, beautiful place. Houses were big, nice school. There was a Presbyterian church, I looked it up, totally liberal, so. I forget what her pastor's name was, but. So I can only look. Jesus, when you look at how much he must have walked, he must have been a very fit man. But I'm not entirely convinced that was the essence of his joy. He was filled without measure with the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Holy Spirit is joy. A man of joy because he is a man of the Spirit. A man of love because he's a man of the Spirit. He had a perfect union of all good things, faithfulness, gentleness and the like, and he was good, free from sin. How could he not be joyful with such a perfect union of all graces working so powerfully in his life? And his social connections and helping others, we're told that in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, he's a man of the Spirit, but he went about doing good. Long before Yale needed to tell us anything about happiness, Jesus was doing good to all people on all occasions. And he was actually quite a social person. You do a study of the Gospels, it's remarkable the degree to which Jesus loved being around people. There's that passage, I think it's in Luke chapter 19, verse 5 or 15, and he says to Zacchaeus, he says, Zacchaeus, I must come to your house tonight. As a pastor, the easiest thing I've ever been able to do in terms of imitating my Lord is inviting myself around to people's homes for nice meals. (laughs) I find out who the best cooks are, the best hosts, and I say to them, I need to come round for dinner. I've been doing this for 15 years. If you're struggling to imitate our Lord, let me suggest starting there. (laughs) But read the Gospels. He's always around people. In fact, he was charged with being a drunkard and a glutton, not that he was, but because he was always with people. He was eating and drinking and being merry. He was joyful. He had his friends, he had his disciples, he had Peter, James, and John, and John, the disciple whom he loved. But you say, it all stops at Golgotha, doesn't it? Does it? For the joy set before him endured the cross. Spurgeon, said a great sorrow was on Christ when our load was laid on him. But a greater joy flashed into his mind when he thought that we were thus recovered from our lost estate. Even the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me when the depths of its woe have been sounded will be found to have pearls of joy in its caverns. was Christ a man of joy all the days of his life despite also being a man of sorrows? The answer is yes, he did not escape the darkness. He did not avoid the darkness, but he persevered through the darkness with joy, with blessedness, dare I say even with happiness, because happy are those whose God is the Lord. So let me come back to that question at the beginning. Who is the most blessed, joyful person in this room? It is the person most like Jesus Christ. It's not the person who can say something great happened to them today and they're just so thankful and happy about it because those things come and go. But Christ's likeness does not come and go. And Christ's likeness is the union of all good things, a settled disposition where you have complete confidence in God that he is your God and that no one can snatch you out of his hand, that you will be with him forever and ever and ever. The person most like Christ is the person most joyful who has gone perhaps through those days of darkness, who may yet have more days of darkness or may currently be in days of darkness, but knows they will persevere through those days because their God is the blessed God who will bless them. And Peter says to those suffering Christians that he writes to, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The point is this. What can the prince of darkness offer his people except who he is? darkness. But what can the light of the world offer his people except light? What can the blessed God offer us except his blessedness? And that's the glory of the Christian faith, that you can be weeping and rejoicing at the same time. You can be in the depths of darkness and have pearls of joy around your neck Some of you maybe haven't yet, you're so young gone through those days of darkness. And they can crush you to the point that you you don't even know if you can make it. And you feel like you're holding on by a thread. And you see the glory of that The glory of that is that as you are brought through that, and as God shows you why he brought you through that, and very often he does, the joy that fills you with what those days of darkness did for you as a Christian, and what those days of darkness in your life did for others who watched you, will fill you with joy. The end is joy, the end is blessedness, the end is glory, the end is happiness, the end is delight. But God gives us tastes of that even now when we don't even deserve it. My friends, I have nothing left to say to you except this. To the degree that you are like Christ Jesus, will be the degree to which you can have joy in your life, happiness in your life, blessedness in your life. Let us pray.